just at the outset, want to tell you we're doing this in two parts today. In two parts. The first part is going to be fast and furious. I've got a lot to cover to, to sort of encapsulate a whole bunch of interpretive stuff and give you some principles. One of the things that we're doing in this series is highlighting some important helps, some tools, some principles for you to take away in your own Bible study and in your own reading. We're sort of opening up the Bible together and doing this interpretive task together during this series. That's kind of how I like to preach anyway, but this series dovetails well with that. I like to lead you through the logic of the text each Sunday. We're going to do that a lot today. Today is kind of kind of heavy and kind of heady at the same time. So uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British preacher, uh, well-known. He's been dead for a while now, but he was a great British preacher. He used to say that good preaching is logic on fire. And we're going to be trying to do logic on fire today so that your head and not just your heart, so that your head will also be uh, increased in its knowledge of God today. So the world, the world doesn't just need more Christians with empty passion. The world needs Christians who have passion based on something that they know because they have knowledge of God in intimate kinds of ways. So that's what we're, that's what we're doing here. We're opening up this, this word together so that we can produce among us self-feeding disciples. That's the goal here. So here are some interpretive principles that are important for us to learn. We did three of them last week. We're going to kind of give them all to you here as we go along in the text today. We won't be using all these today, but we'll point a few out here and there and we'll use these through the rest of our our sermon series here. Number one in the list is pray to hear God's Word. We've done that today already this morning. And it's something you, you, you sort of want to do as you approach the text each time. This is something that doesn't always come to mind as an interpretive principle for how we think about Scripture, but it's really important. Uh, I studied under many extremely wise men who handled God's Word carefully, and, and they did that because of humility and prayer in the first place. So, so pray for God to speak to you and commit yourself to learn whatever He wants to communicate to you because, listen, friends, you can read God's Word, you can sit for an hour during preaching, and still not hear God's word. So, pray to hear God's word. Number two, context is king. Context is king and queen. And prince and princess and court jester. Context determines meaning. The immediate context of the passage, the remote context of the passage, the audience of a particular passage... Uh, the context even includes things like word usage in Bible times, what was the cultural context at the time it was written, uh, etc. That's number two, context is king. We'll talk about that as the launching pad for today in just a minute here. Number three, Scripture interprets Scripture. We talked about this last week. Uh, this is a really big one. Scripture interprets Scripture. There are times when you may come across a particular passage and you may come across the verse and not be sure about what it means, so you look up another passage that has a similar theme. That's called a parallel. Uh, many of your Bibles have cross-references for that reason, so that you can look up the other places where Scripture talks about these things to bring you clarity about what you're reading. So if you don't have a Bible with cross-references, I encourage you to do that because number three is important. Scripture interprets Scripture. Number four, Scripture also interprets the world. Scripture interprets the world. We talked about this last week a little bit. Scripture is like a filter where you put information into it and out comes truth. It doesn't really work the other way around. Now, 
I do have to give a little disclaimer here. This doesn't hold, and we'll talk about why later on in another principle. This doesn't hold in each and every case for everything you could ever come across. For example, let me tell you what I mean. For example, you cannot rely on Scripture to give you a full-blown theory of chemistry. Just saying you won't get it there. That doesn't mean that God as creator didn't make chemistry and can explain it in a way that is far more involved, uh, or true for that matter, as our best chemists in the world today. It doesn't mean that truth isn't shown here, but you're not going to get a full-blown uh, theory of, uh, scriptural, uh, of cellular biology in Scripture. It isn't there. And I'm not saying Scripture doesn't tell us things about creation but its primary purpose is to tell us things about God. It exists to reveal to us, Scripture reveals to us God the Father and His work to save us and show us His righteousness. So number four is Scripture interprets the world. Number five, Scripture communicates its basic purposes clearly. And there's some overlap with the previous one, and you'll see some overlap in some of these principles here and there. Number five, though, is Scripture communicates its basic purposes Clearly, it tells us who we are, tells us why we exist, tells us who God is, it tells us who Jesus is and why he came to save us. It communicates those things clearly. One of the most important things for us to remember to help us understand the big picture of who God is is that Scripture communicates those things clearly. And so lots of the other things that we have questions must be uh, interpreted in light of those larger, big picture things. If there's something I don't understand going on over here, maybe, maybe the purpose fits in with up here that I'm forgetting. If you've been in higher education for the last 20 to 30 years, you know the word meta-narrative is important. There is a meta-narrative in Scripture. The meta-narrative, the big picture, is that God salvifically, meaning savingly, he salvifically reveals himself through Jesus. That's what Scripture communicates in big scale terms. So it's important to remember that Scripture is clear in its basic purposes. Number six, read from the text, not into it. Read from the text, not into it. We're flying through this because I can't tell you everything about this, but I want you to have the principles out there to guide you some. To read from the text, not into it, means to let this text guide you, which requires humility to go where the Scriptures take you. The Word is in the driver's seat, and we are passengers. We are meant to exegete out, to draw out the meaning, not read things into it as if our personal experience and understanding tells these words what they mean. Are we preaching yet? That's how we get twisted, messed up interpretations of Scripture. Number seven... We are way not going to explain all of this, but I think it's important to bear in mind. I'll give you a resource for it. Number seven, read the text literally, meaning in the plain sense, and often also figuratively. Those two are not opposed to one another. But not always literalistically. Without really explaining a whole lot about this, I want to encourage you, if you have access to the interwebs, to go to uh, Bible.org, www.bible.org. And as soon as it comes up, there's this big box that says search or something like that. Put taking the Bible literally in that search box. Article number one is what you'll find. Taking the Bible literally. It's just a, a nice little two, three-page summary of some of what we're trying to say here in number seven. 
And number eight, one of my favorites, number eight is avoid chronological snobbery. Avoid chronological snobbery. C.S. Lewis used to say this all the time. He wasn't the first, but he made it kind of famous. Let me just summarize this concept by saying this. You and I are not somehow privy to special knowledge that no one else has ever had simply because we exist in the contemporary modern world where we have lots of information. We are not the first to read these words. And those who came before us have wisdom we don't, which is why you should read lots of books by lots of dead people. Because the truth of their books that are classics have stood the test of time. We are not the first to read these things, to think these things. And sometimes we get this sort of, I'm modern and and I have more information kind of way of thinking about Scripture. That's chronological snobbery. It acts like you're the first to ever see the truth of something. Please. That's just self-centeredness. History matters. History matters. And those who have gone before have loads to tell us about how things were interpreted in Scripture. Church history is most, one of the most fascinating things you could, you could do with your time because it helps instruct you and helps bring some humility to the interpretive process. Amen, Dr. Van Hamburg. We will continue to use these principles throughout this series, but today we're going to dive into this passage with context is king. And we're going to do this pretty much the whole series. Um, that's kind of the point of this whole twisted series, right? Like, People like to twist things to suit themselves. And now we're preaching, because this isn't just about the text. This is about you and me personally. Context is king. It doesn't just have to do with this text. It has to do with our behavior and our relationships. In other words, there are times in relationships when because I don't want to have to make the time or effort to learn the context of something about your life or vice versa, I may make judgments before I have enough information to make the judgment. This isn't just a scripture problem. This is a behavior problem, a life behavior problem. How many times, because I know this is the case for me and probably for you too, how many times has someone maligned you, spoken ill of you, gotten the wrong picture about you, primarily because they didn't have context. They didn't have enough information. They didn't know what was really going on. It happens all the time. Vice versa. Vice versa. How many times have you misread somebody because you didn't care enough to find out the context, to dig deep enough to learn about who they are, where they come from, what the story is? Context is really important. The reason we have a whole series called Twisted is because interpersonal lack of context becomes reading into these pages what I want to hear. And I know that I have misread 1820 a couple times from this very stage. Verse 20, 18 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I I wanted to communicate so clearly to you all what we do here is sacred stuff. And it is. God's presence is among us. And it is. But this isn't the verse where you you teach that. (laughs) I've stood before you a couple times and said, friends, isn't it so great 
That we can gather together today and worship knowing that God is among us. Scripture says, for where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. We can worship together confident that God's presence is among us. And that's true. It's true that it's great to worship together. And there are plenty of places in Scripture that communicate that. But this is not one of them. This verse isn't about worship. It's not about generic fellowship. It's not about warm fuzzies of getting together. In fact, it's not about warm fuzzies at all. It isn't even about prayer meetings. 1820 is in the context of a passage that is about church discipline. It's about coming together to reason together for the purpose of God's gospel being inserted in relationships so that we will be held accountable to one another for holiness in our lives. That's what this is about. Jesus is instructing his disciples on how to handle situations of conflict. So what's the context here? Context is king. What's the context? We don't have enough time to read through all these, but, but it's important to know that Jesus has just finished uh, telling the parable of the lost sheep. Just before our passage, he's just been telling the parable of the lost sheep where he emphasizes restoring someone, restoring someone who has gone astray. And it comes immediately before the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is about being willing to forgive and cancel an outstanding debt. So first we see in our surrounding context, we've got 15 to 20, immediately before and immediately after, words fit like restoration, in those parables, forgiveness, reconciliation, community. In fact, Matthew has probably intentionally put 15 to 20 smack dab in the middle of these parables to help tip us off as to what 15 to 20 are there for. Not only that, but, but go out a little bit wider. In the wider context of, of Matthew... This passage is in the span of a few chapters here that are all about Jesus' teaching about what the new Messiah community looks like. What happens when you have a community of people where the Messiah reigns, where restoring to holiness and, and, and restoring people to relationship with God is the goal of it? What happens? What does that look like? So think about this. We've just named, we haven't even gotten to the first verse yet, we've just named two things we learned from the context of our passage today. Number one, reconciliation is involved. And number two, that happens in the context of community. So what do you think this passage is going to be like? What do you think it's going to be about? Let's figure it out. James 15, I'm sorry, Matthew 15. Uh, 18, 15, wow. Step one. Step one, go and tell offender his fault. Matthew 18, 15 says this. If your brother sins against you. Notice the word brother there. If your brother, that's a family word. We're talking about uh, relationships within the family of God. It says, if your brother sins against you, this is an active word here next, go and tell him his fault. If your brother sins against you, go. Like, sitting here is not what's meant. Go and tell him your fault, his fault. If he listens to you, this word listen here doesn't just mean to hear the words. To hear them audibly, it means to be in agreement with. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now remember we talked about Scripture interprets Scripture. Luke 17.3 is a passage we're going to look at here. It's a parallel passage. And there's something we learn about our passage, Matthew 18, from Luke 17. So look at Luke 17.3 here. 
Luke 17.3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. You can see there's a general principle here that's just like Matthew 18, but there are a couple things that are different. What Jesus is doing here in Matthew 18 is he expanding upon what we just saw in Luke 17, which is actually him expanding upon the principle in Leviticus 19. But, but look at Luke 17.3 again. It says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, Forgive him. Now flip back to Matthew 18, 15. We're going to do a lot of this back and forth thing. Good Bible study means a lot of flipping around, by the way. It adds two nuances here in chapter 18. Number one, that this is primarily about interpersonal conflict. Luke 17 just says it's about sin. Luke 18 applies it to the context of interpersonal conflict. It says, if your brother sins against you, in Matthew 18, 15. In other words, this isn't just about sin generally, but it's about sin against you. Jesus applying the basic principle more specifically. And then nuance two, difference number two. Notice it explicitly adds the idea that this is between you and him alone. This is not yet about anyone else at this point. Just about two people. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So by looking at these parallels, I'm going to open up the interpretive process. I want you to come along with me in this. By looking at these parallels, we see that Matthew 18 has a bit of a difference. It's about interpersonal conflict, and the solution is to solve it one-on-one. One other thing I want to show you about this verse before we uh, keep moving here. Look at the word gained there at the end of verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This, this word is a tip-off to us that, that this, this restoring of relationship isn't just about having like social reciprocity. It's not just so that you can pass them in the halls at work and be okay with one another or, or live in the same household and not you know, want to, to do something violent to those uh, around you. This isn't just about like keeping peace. This is about something much bigger than that. And the word gained there is a tip off that this is about restoring to discipleship. It's about restoring to right relationship with one another and with God. So reconciliation is, uh, is the idea here. The offender is sorry, truly sorry, and the offended forgives. And there's reconciliation. That's what gained is trying to remind us about here. So it sounds, at this point, simple enough, right? You got a problem, you go to the other person. Right? Simple. If 25% of us could be 25% more successful in actually carrying out step one, go... And tell him his fault. We would prevent a lot of evil gossip. A lot of unnecessary misunderstandings. A lot of silly disagreements. A lot of unstated expectations. The relationships are founded upon. Unknown tensions in our relationships. If 25% of us. 25% more successfully did step one. Gospel mission would be unleashed in our lives. We would be a more faithful, a more trusting, a more honest, a more loving, and a more mature 
community of people where the grace of God would operate more freely in our relationships. What Jesus understands and he's trying to communicate is that relational tension hinders gospel mission. Remember, we've got to keep the big picture in mind. And that's the big picture. Jesus isn't just telling them this so that they could you know, operate with one another. He's telling this so that reconciliation can actually happen so that gospel mission, which demonstrates the truth of God because our witness is corporate together, gospel mission would be unleashed. You want to make this practical. Don't let your head hit the pillow tonight until you have thought practically about the people to whom and the people with whom step number one needs to happen. So, we got a lot more to cover. Got a boogie. We're going to pick up the pace here. If one-on-one reconciliation doesn't work, go to step two. Which is, if needed, take along another person. These next couple verses are not hard to understand here. If needed, take along another person. It says, Matthew 18, 16, If he does not listen, if there is no agreement on the issue, take one or two others along with you. In other other words, widen the net so that it's a conversation between three to four people so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three Witnesses. This idea of establishing the evidence is a long-held biblical concept. It's Jewish tradition of Deuteronomy 19.15, if you want to look that up later. Deuteronomy 19.15, uh, if you want to look that up later. So, so having others around helps ensure due process. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's saying this has to be something that is carried out in a manner that that comports with, that accords with, that fits with the heart of God. And and we need to have others around who are mature believers. So three to four people as a part of this conversation is going to make sure that this is fair, that this is done well. That's step two in the process. If that doesn't work, step three. Step three, verse 17a, just the first half of the verse. If needed, tell the church. It says, if he, notice this, refuses to listen. It said, if he doesn't listen. Now it says, if he refuses to listen. There's a more strong way of saying it here. The same word for listen is used, but now it's sort of like a a continuing, ongoing stubbornness. He has refused to listen. And if that's the case, tell it to the church. Now notice it says, not refusing to listen to you, but to the three to four, to them as well. As we widen the net, we also widen the net of accountability. I want you to notice two things here. Number one, like we just mentioned, the refusal of the offender isn't just to you, but it's also to three or four. But also, just a practical matter, if this is the case, to tell it to the church may not mean the worship service. It could. But I think given, as a matter of protocol, even though this isn't explicit in the text yet, uh, this step involves approaching the elders uh, as they are the God-appointed leaders of the local church. In that manner, you have, you have told those who uh, are in charge of shepherding the congregation. If that doesn't work, go to step four. If needed, treat him like an outsider, 17b, the second half of verse 17. This is where it starts to get difficult, friends. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The last straw 
Jesus says is going back to treating the offender as you would a Gentile and a tax collector, which, by the way, is, if you want to look back in previous parts of Matthew, the way Jesus talks about treating Gentiles and tax collectors with love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So this isn't, this isn't like a shunning excommunication kind of behavior. This is a go ahead and treat them as non-believers who need reconciliation, just like Gentiles and tax collectors. Notice something else here. The beginning of verse 15 starts out by saying, if your brother. By the time here in 17b, we get to this point in the process, the offender is not actually a brother. This is key. The offender is no longer a brother, like in 15. It says the offender is to be treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. Keep reading, 18 through 20. This is where Jesus communicates more of this idea here. This is going to be a little bit complicated in this part. We're going to go between Matthew 18 and Matthew 16. Uh, I'll try to go a smidge slower than first service. It's a little complicated, but it's worth it. Look at verse 18. It says, Truly I say to you, that's a rabbi way of saying, don't miss this, listen to this. Truly I say to you, whatever you, and the question here is, who is the you? We'll answer that soon. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Why in the world does Jesus start talking about this binding and loosing stuff uh, in the context of what we've already been reading with church discipline? Obviously, as we see verse 18, it talks about binding and loosing. It has something to do with authority. It has something to do with binding and, and, and loosing, freedom. But the disciples who had heard this here from Jesus already knew what this meant because he had already told them. Look back at Matthew 16, verse 19. This isn't the first time they've heard this kind of thing from Jesus. He's referring back to 16, verse 19, where he first says this to his disciples, and more specifically to Peter. Look at Matthew 16, 19. This is important context for understanding what's going on in Matthew 18. It says, verse 19, Matthew 16, I will give you, Jesus talking, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's the part that's different. This is the rest of it that's almost verbatim like Matthew 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is almost the same exact verbiage as Matthew 18, other than this addition of that phrase, keys, of the kingdom. And turn back a couple more verses to Matthew 16, 17 through 19. I'm sorry, 17 and 18 here. This is immediately after Jesus had asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the group and he says, sort of with confidence on behalf of everybody, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and look at what Jesus says in response to Peter. He says, Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This isn't human-centered truth. For flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, whose name in Greek means rock. So Jesus plays off this rock thing. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the rock here obviously refers to Peter personally. That's why he makes this pun sort of thing. But the question still remains, to what specifically does Jesus speak of when he's talking about this rock 
on which he will build the church. This is important stuff here. What is the on the rock part that he will use to build his church? Some have thought that this means that there will be a man who is a representative of God's authority who is in charge of the church on earth. Protestants don't believe that because we believe the head is Christ. And we, we, I'll show you some other reason why we believe that Peter's declaration of Jesus as Christ is the rock. Jesus as Christ, him declaring that, is the rock on which the church will be built. It is the key that opens the kingdom of God. Declaring Jesus as Lord provides access. So the rock that builds the church isn't Peter, but Peter's declaration of Jesus as Lord. We'll show you another proof of this in a second. Let me summarize by saying having the keys of the kingdom, having the keys of the kingdom is not about control. Think about how you have a key. It doesn't give you control. It gives you access. Having the key to the kingdom is about access. It means declaration of Jesus as Son of God gives access to kingdom. Let me give you one proof that this is the case. One proof that this is the case and that Jesus isn't talking about Peter as being in charge of the whole church. We'll do that by working our way back to Matthew 18. So stay in Matthew 16 for a second here in verse 19. Jesus finishes up what he's saying. He says, I will give you, in verse 19, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The proof is this, verse 18 in our passage. Look at Matthew 18, 18. Matthew 18, 18. He repeats almost the same exact verse. Truly I say to you. Now notice this. You here isn't just Peter. A case could be made, even though I don't think it's a good one, that the first part where Matthew 8, uh, 16, he talks to Peter alone, means that Peter could be in charge of the whole church. But look at what he's saying here. He speaks to him in Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, and he's not just speaking to Peter. We know this because of the next verse where he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. I say to you, if two of you agree about anything you ask, if two or three are gathered in an agreement. So the you here in Matthew 18, 18 truly I say to you, has now been extended to all believers. This is it right here. The truth of the power of the declaration of Jesus as Lord brings accountability to God to each and every situation. And you don't have to be, you don't have to be Peter only to do that. Jesus is inserting this because he's saying in interpersonal conflict, like I've been talking about in this step one, step two, step three, step four, Inserting the power of the gospel to bring people to account is what brings reconciliation. The binding and the freeing is locked and unlocked by that access to the kingdom. Jesus as the Lord is the key. Inserting the gospel into people's lives holds them accountable to God. So, now, look at verses 19 to 20. Now it's clear what they're really about. Again, I say to you, Jesus speaking, if two of you agree on earth about anything to ask. In other words, if in coming together the gospel with mature believers around as a part of a situation, whether it's the one-on-one 
the three or four, the whole church, whatever the case, mature believers come around and they are spirit-led and directed and the gospel is the center and the goal of the reconciliation about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven for where two or three are gathered, there am I among them. So here's the amazing contrast that we see between this twisted version of verse 20 and this more biblical interpretation we've talked about today. This is not about God's presence among us to give us confidence about our gathering for worship or our fellowship. This passage is about God's presence among us to give us confidence to carry out His desire to call people to repentance. That's the key. If the Holy Spirit's in you, you have the key to unlock the kingdom in people's lives. That's amazing. To call people to repentance to a holy God. To reconcile with Him. Is the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through regular old believers. That is how you unlock the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That God's presence is among us so we can confidently move forward in kingdom mission. Knowing that God will bring fruit to bear from doing what He's called us to do. Let's pray, friends.